been away for about a month, and we're excited. Uh, Nathan and I are excited to be back with you today. Um, this will be our third episode, um, and we'll be hosting uh, Professor Chris Anzel to discuss his new paper in the first issue of PPMG, uh, titled Governing Turbulence and Organizational Institutional Agenda, and that paper is co-authored with Yarlow Trundle. Um, we have a couple of announcements as well to get us started today. Um, the first is that we have a, a fourth episode, the next episode scheduled for next Monday, um, and that'll be March 12th at 3 p.m., and that'll be a conversation Nathan and I are having with Karina Schott. Uh, we will be discussing Karina's paper, which is co-authored with Adrian Ritz, and the paper is titled The Dark Sides of Public Service Motivation, a Multi-Level Theoretical Framework. So we're really looking forward to talking with Karina next week. Um, we're going to round out this issue where uh, Nathan and I are currently working with Professors Tina Nabachi and Professor Ken Meyer um, to do some talks with them as well to get uh, the last bit of the episodes on the first issue. And then we'll keep you updated with those through the PMRA Facebook page and on these episodes. Um, the other thing that we are kind of are excited to announce is that we'll be reaching out um, after we've given the opportunity to those that are have uh, have a paper in the first issue. We're going to be reaching out to those that have articles in advance access on PPMG. And so if you have a paper accepted to PPMG, you'll be getting an email from Nathan and I seeing if you're willing to come talk with us um, about your paper. So look out for look out for that as well. Yeah. So um, again, we're really excited to have um, Chris Ansel with us. Chris Ansel is a professor in the Department of Political Science at University of California, Berkeley. His research focuses on a few areas, public policy and governance, organization theory, public administration, political sociology, and European politics. Um, and he has over 50 journal articles, so of course I can't tell you the titles of all of those. Um, and um, or journal articles, titles, and he also has a number of books. Um, so we're really excited to be able to talk to him. Thanks, uh, Chris, for, for coming and joining us. All right, we're going to bring Chris in, but just as a reminder, if you are following live and you have a, a question that you would like to ask, you can send it. I'll, we'll be moderating those as well and potentially ask Chris one of those questions as we go on throughout the, throughout the episode. So I'm going to bring Chris in. You should be in in three, two, one. How are you, Chris? Hi, guys. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Justin. Good to see you this morning. <laughs> well, it's bright and early out your way this morning, isn't it, out on the West Coast? It's pretty early here. <laughs> yeah. We are representing three time zones because you're out on the West Coast. I'm in Texas time. I know it's not called Texas time, but we're going to call it Texas time because I'm in Texas. And uh, Nathan's out on the East Coast, so we're representing three different times. Yeah, I think you guys were in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, uh, what was that? That's technology, right? It's a beautiful thing that we can actually all be in our respective offices or homes and having a, having a conversation about your work, which um, we're excited about this morning. So um, I guess we'll jump right into that. Your article is titled Governing Turbulence and Organizational Institutional Agenda. And I think it might be useful to start with what you mean by turbulence. You argue in the paper um, for adopting turbulence as a conceptual device in times of dynamic interactive change, I think is quoting your paper there. And so tell us a little bit about what you mean by turbulence. Okay, thanks. Um, let me try to unpack that for you a little bit. Um, 
maybe first place to orient people is that the concept of turbulence first came from physics, from uh, studies of fluid dynamics. Um, and so, you, you know, uh, complex river currents, complex weather patterns, etc. turbulence from airplanes. Um, so, so it came from physics. Um, but in the 1960s, uh, two organization theorists, Emery Trist and Fred, um, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, Fred Emery and Eric Trist, uh, they, they began to bring this idea of turbulence into organization theory, and, and they used it to talk, to talk about uh, turbulent environments. And um, a basic feature of turbulence, as they talked about it, is, is not only that it's event-driven, but that it's it's about the interaction of events. It's how events interact. Um, so let me give you an example. So uh, let's say uh, there's a, a public uh, public agency and its budget precipitously drops. Uh, there's a budget cut. So that budget cut itself may be to some degree turbulent for the agency, but but you know of limited turbulence so then but let's say at the same time that this budget cut occurs there's also the organization also faces a uh, um, uh, um, new and unexpected demand for public services and maybe at the same time there's a court case brought against the agency uh, that requires them to pay a lot of fees so it, and so, et cetera, et cetera, you can add in events. So turbulence is, is partly about the event, but it's also partly about this interaction of events. And so when we talk about dynamic interactive change, we're talking about uh, turbulence is trying to capture the concept that, you know, these events are interacting in a, in a complex way. So. Um, and it's different from a one-off uh so one of the main points it sounds like with the turbulence, it's not necessarily just one, say, external shock. It's more yeah. interaction between several types of disruptions or shocks to the organization. Is that sort of yeah. interactive it, that really makes it turbulent? Yeah. So I mean, we we really stress this interactive character of events. I mean, I, I think you could talk about, and that's kind of what I'm going to say next. There's there's a little bit more to the concept. Um, you, you could talk about the way that. For instance, budgets might fluctuate. They might be very volatile, so they go up and down in you know in ways that are hard to hard to uh, predict or anticipate. So that could itself be turbulent. But when you begin to add in other events, you know the, the drop in the budget plus the unexpected demand for more service plus getting sued by the court, that, then it starts to become more. So uh, I was going to come back and say this later, but turbulence, we think of it as a, as a variable. So it could be low turbulence to high turbulence. So as you add these things in, turbulence becomes more serious, more profound. But yeah, let me come back to that point that there's, a, there's another element to this. Um, because there's also it, part of it is then about events and the interaction of events, but it, but it's also about how people experience the events. Um, and so you can think of public managers experiencing or organizational members experiencing turbulence. And uh, thing interesting thing about this um, in the Emory and Trist tradition, scholars over time. So this has been an active tradition since the 1960s in organization theory, a kind of a small one in respect to 
organization theory overall, but kind of an important and long lasting one. So in this tradition, scholars over time, like in any tradition, they built up uh, a whole bunch of different adjectives to describe uh, uh, this issue of how people experience turbulence. So they used uh, adjectives like volatility or chaos or complexity. So one of the things that we did early in the project is we just pulled all these different uh, definitions together and we tried to distill it down to a set of common uh, uh, attributes that we thought, because people were using a lot of synonyms to describe chaos or volatility, you know, complexity, these are chaos and complexity might be kind of similar. So we boiled it down and, and so this is the second part of the definition. So it's first of all events or the interaction of events, but it's experiencing those events as highly variable, inconsistent, unexpected, or unpredictable. That's kind of uh, key. So, so that gives you an experiential basis to to the um, to turbulence. And so, I can come back to my example. So, if you talk about budgets fluctuating a lot over time, and the budget cut interacts with an unpredictable service demand and an unexpected court case. So, these it's it's the uh, it's how these events are experienced that makes it turbulent. Um, yeah, so, so uh, I think one yeah, of the go ahead. yeah, so uh, I think one of the things that was interesting about it, I, I do a little bit of work on risk um, and have a paper coming out in PPMG about risk as well. And so one of the things I noticed when I was looking through your definition of turbulence was the the unpredictable part. What makes turbulence so challenging? It's not like with risk where you sort of know or have decent estimates of the impact of something and the likelihood of it. Turbulence is more kind of thing, you know, unknown unknowns, as they say, things that are a little bit harder to predict. And I, I think that's a nice way to distinguish it from risk, at least is how I hear you relate. Yeah. And I think uh, surprise is often an important characteristic of turbulence. I just, I'll just say in terms of, since you raised the point about risk, one of the things that people often use the term turbulence and uncertainty interchangeably and I mean, uh, one one argument we have in the paper is, is in trying to clarify the distinction is that uncertainty is really a claim about information um, and turbulence is a really uh, uh, a claim about how people experience uh, the world around them, the events around them. So one argument in the literature is that actually turbulence is the cause of uncertainty. Um, but, but we tried, you know, so you, you can see we, we have unexpected or unpredictable, but we don't have uncertain in the definition. We we're trying to kind of distinguish those those ideas. Uh, I, I, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say the other place where I've seen turbulent used recently is uh, is in the management and performance literature, where yeah. they're, they're looking at it as an external environment, uh, uh, external environmental factor of the external. Yeah of the organization, and I believe it was a piece that uh, Ken Meyer and Larry O'Toole have, um, and it talks about the things that managers need, the contextual things that managers need to be worried about, and external uh, contextual factors include uh, munificence, um, and complexity, and turbulence. And so yeah, I know right, it's right. been discussed a little bit in the management, and, and that's where I was most familiar with the term before looking through your paper for today. This actually, and, 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 this end, we get, 
some feedback here, some reverberation. But uh, in um, this comes to a point you're going to ask me in a second. But um, uh, yeah, in the in the Emory and Tris tradition of studying turbulence, it focuses on how organizations uh, respond to turbulence in their environment. So so that 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 Meyer and O'Toole piece, which is kind of one of uh, one of the few, I think, in, in uh, public administration that, that has operationalized turbulence. Uh, that 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 piece is kind of fits in this Henryan yeah. tradition very nicely. Yeah, I was going to say one last thing about um, about the issue of definition, which is one of the things we do in the paper is we try to distinguish turbulence from crisis. And as we see it, turbulence and crisis are complementary concepts that kind of can kind of work together. But uh, one of the ways, to, but but we see them as having a sort of a different scope of uh, of of what they relate to. I think most crises are turbulent, but uh, often you can have uh, turbulence in non-crisis conditions. So that's for us. That's what one of the um, why turbulence is uh, is a valuable concept. It it applies both uh, during a crisis, but you know many organizations are facing turbulence on a day to day basis, and and you wouldn't call what they're facing necessarily crisis, but they do. They may face varying levels of turbulence. The other thing is it's it's not necessarily. So, but I think crisis itself is you're either in a crisis or you're not. But with turbulence, you know, you might face varying levels over time of turbulence. So, so it's more of a continuous variable. And now I should say that we, we don't really operationalize it in the paper, partly because I think to operationalize it, it's going to be more context specific. But um, we do provide some references to people, to articles like Meyer and O'Toole that you mentioned that have tried to operationalize it. So, so there is a there's a history, particularly in organization theory, of operationalizing that. So building on the definition and some of the thoughts about oper operationalization, um, you, you also, in the paper, lay out three different categories or classifications or types of turbulence. Uh, of turbulence, and the, those are turbulent environments, turbulent organizations, and turbulence of scale. And uh, could you tell us a little bit as we're kind of probing the broad construct of turbulence here and differentiating it from other constructs, what, how do you think of these three uh, you know, types of turbulence, if types okay. is the word we use? In a way, that this is trying to build on, um, build on the tradition of Emory and Trist in organization theory but also go a little bit beyond it. So as I mentioned in the, in the traditional, you know, the original conception of turbulence, it was about how organizations adapt to turbulent environments. So turbulence is outside of the organization and the organization has to figure out a way to, to adapt to this kind of turbulence. And so that's the original notion of turbulence. Um, but, um, to some extent, people extended that into organizations. They said that organizations, um, you know, it's not just that they're responding to turbulence outside the organization, like a budget cut, but also 
that the organization internally is turbulent. And um, although uh, it doesn't really use that concept of turbulence, if you think about, for instance, garbage can theory, which talks about organized chaos or an organized anarchy within the, within the uh, organization, that's that's the notion that internally within the organization, there's a, there's a level of turbulence. And some scholars have extended that and from thinking about turbulent environments to thinking about turbulent organizations. And, and of course, one of the points we try to make is that turbulent organizations and turbulent environments can interact in complex ways. So that if the, if the environment is turbulent, it can affect internal turbulence of organizations. So if you just imagine now how public agencies are responding to the, this, uh, to the new administration in Washington, you can easily imagine that the turbulent environment is producing some internal turbulence in terms of, you know, there's leadership succession at the same time as that there's budget shifts is the same time as the there's, um, you know, um, uh, attacks on basic public uh, public sector capacities, and it's, you can go on and on, I guess. But but I think you can see that's a good example, I think, of how the, the internal organizational, the external environment, and the internal organization are going to interact in terms of how how uh, turbulent they are. And and um, th there was some interesting development of research in organization theory about this, which talked about the way that managers can make decisions that either increase, or they called it maladaptive, they, they respond to turbulence in ways that actually accentuate the turbulence, uh, or, they can, or they can adapt more adaptive responses that dampen or kind of reduce the uh, turbulence either inside or outside of the organization. So that's that's the first two concepts, um, turbulent environments, turbulent organizations. And then the third one really comes from Jarl's uh, research on the European Union. I think that's what, where the inspiration came. Although I've also been thinking about issues related to scale a lot recently. But um, he, uh, Jarl studies um, the development of European uh, administration at the Europe at kind of public agencies at the European level and one of the things he's been very uh, focused on is the way that uh, you know what how, how do decisions made at the European level then feedback into decisions or into you know management at the national level and what he he stresses in a lot of his work is that um, the way that that um, uh, decisions are made at the European level are often kind of not aligned very well with what's going on at the national level. So there's this kind of feedback effects that, that create turbulence. So this is what he, he I mean, I think he, he came up with the idea originally. We talked about it together, I think, but it's inspired by his work. And um, it, it's about that, that organizations or administrations operating on different levels geographical or political levels are creating, you know, complex feedback effects by their actions, you know, and they're, they're not always well aligned. And, and that's creating what he called then, or we call <laughs> turbulence of scale. So that's the, that's the third element.
Yeah, and I can yeah. imagine that that uh, plays out. I mean, given the networked nature of a lot of governance, even on yeah. the same sort of operating scale, but having to work with a networked uh, organizations might also have some of that feedback uh, in terms of turbulence uh, that you mentioned. That, that's kind of interesting to think of it that way. Yeah, I hadn't actually. Uh, there is some work. Uh, there is some work by I think uh, provident chemists that we cite in the in the article that talks about uh, the relationship between uh, turbulence and and um, and networks. So so one of the original arg arguments about collaborative governance, uh, the paper by the book by Barbara Gray, basically argued that collaboration itself was a kind of a, uh, a response to turbulence. So collaboration was a, was a way of kind of dampening or, or responding to turbulence. So yes, I think there's a, some interesting interactions between networks or collaboration and, and, um, and turbulence that can be drawn out. And it does fit with that notion of uh, turbulence of scale that Jarl talks about. Yeah. I'll take a step away from grilling you with questions and uh, <laughs> and let me grill them with questions. <laughs> no, this is this is very fascinating. Um, so uh, one of the things you just mentioned was um, ways to maybe networks being one way to dampen some of the effects of turbulence. So let's mm -hmm. unpack a little bit maybe what some of those effects of turbulence are. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in your article you talk about it posing um, some challenges as well as maybe some opportunities. Um, what what are are the kinds of challenges or opportunities that turbulence brings about for an organization? Okay, I think um, we talk about three types of generic types of challenges in the paper, and so what I thought I'd do is I'd run through them and then um, uh, give you give you a little example, just to, because this, you know this stuff is uh, is is described at a high level, so. So it's yeah. nice to have examples to kind of pin it. Examples are great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let me, but let me give you the generic uh, uh, challenges first, and then I'll come to the examples. So, uh, so we we have three that we talk about in the paper. Um, three main types that we, we describe. So the first is what we call shifting parameters, and that that really was kind of inspired by um, a description. Uh, in part given by Emery and Trist in their original work, which they, they describe turbulence as a kind of phrase that I really like. Uh, they describe turbulence as the ground is, is in motion. The ground is in motion. And um, late, later on, um, the work of an international relations scholar who kind of made turbulence an important concept in international relations, his name is Rosnow, uh, he, he used the term shifting parameters. So we're borrowing that from him. Um, and, and what's challenging about that, so when the ground is in motion, when they're shifting parameters, uh, you know, our basic assumptions about how people behave or what technologies are relevant or um, who the relevant stakeholders are, that's changing. And so the consequence uh, is that it's kind of, um, you, you can't rely on the status quo, but at the same time, uh, it's hard to plan for the future. So the generic challenge there is that um, that your kind of organizations are kind of in a limbo. Things are changing, but they're not sure what future looks like, so they're they're caught in this limbo period. So that's the, that's the first generic challenge as we understand it. And the second generic challenge is is uh, uh, what we call intercurrence. 
that's a fancy word. Uh, we didn't create it, but we borrowed it from two scholars of American political development, Karen Oren and Stephen Skoranek. And they talk about the way that American institutions over time are just created by this layering effect of putting you know, new, you don't get rid of the old institutions, you just put new ones on top of them. And that, what that creates is this challenge of the way that the new and old institutions will interact. Um, and uh, <clears throat> they use it to describe the um, unexpected, they, they describe it as unexpected entanglements that occur between otherwise inter independent institutions or uh, to put it in kind of language of systems between different compartmentalized subsystems. So that's, that's uh, uh, I'm going to come back and give you an example of that. But but basically, the, the key challenge that arises out of this is one that I mentioned earlier. This is challenge. The first one is you're in limbo. The second is that this creates surprise. Um, uh, so when these entanglements occur, it create, I mean, people are just shocked that it's, that it's happened. That's kind of the, that's the, um, and, and you can imagine, um, well, yeah, so it, it leads, leads to surprise. So the third generic challenge that we talk about is what we call temporal complexity. And, um, we, we I was kind of surprised actually, because, uh, while there's a lot of discussion in the literature of complexity. There's not, there's almost no discussion of how complexity is a temporal issue, like how to kind of line things up and, and sure. synchronize things. And we, I was kind of surprised by that. So, so uh, I think temp, uh, turbulence gets at this issue of temporal complexity. And a kind of easy way to think about this that we all experienced, I think, is that um, you have you know, uh, different units or managers, different organizations. They're working on different time frames. Think about a kind of a complex project, like building a big bridge across the bay here in, in San Francisco. You know, all the different components, they all have different uh, time frames. And those time frames are often not very well aligned or uh, integrated with each other. So, um, so, um, so the example there is just kind of getting on the same page with, with your time frame. Uh, the example I thought I would give is from Scott Snook's book about a friendly fire incident in northern Iraq after the first Gulf War. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I think it was came out. Uh, I forget the uh, publisher, but it's, I think, early 2000s. It's a great book if you haven't read it. Um, and basically, it's a story about how two American Black Hawk helicopters fly into the no-fly zone in northern Iraq one morning, and they get shot down by two American F-16, I think, uh, fighter planes that are guarding the no-fly zone. And so basically what Snook does is in a, in a lot of detail, he goes in and develops an explanation for why this, you know, friendly fire incident occurred. And uh, you know, he has his own explanation that's more elaborate than I give, but, but I think you can see the examples of, of what we call shifting parameters, intercurrence, and temporal complexity in his discussion. And so, for example, uh, the, the first one thing that happens is that the institutional rules for regulating who can go in and when and why you can go into the no-fly zone uh, had changed over time. Um, 
and the army unit that controlled the Blackhawks uh, were basically out of the loop on what those rules were. And um, the, the other thing is that the, the basic uh, codes, what are called squawk codes, so that the planes can communicate with each other, they were working on different frequencies because that had shifted over time. So, so I think, so, so I'm using that as an example of shifting parameters, but the parameters by which these two, you know, the Air Force and the Army were operating had shifted over time and that created this basic coordination problem. Uh, the Army and the Air Force were entirely separate units that operated out of different air bases and they had almost no informal interaction. So this was this was a kind of a, uh, an issue of surprising institutional entanglement between two units that almost operated completely separately uh, most of the time. So they, they very, very rarely coordinated on, on, on missions. And so this was, and so this was a kind of a part of the whole explanation. It was a shock for these F-16 fighter pilots to find these American Blackhawks flying into the no-fly zone. Uh, so that was a big surprise. And, and they interpreted their entry, they, they basically saw them as being Soviet-made MiGs, uh, so they were they were not uh, American helicopters at all, but they, they saw them as MiGs. And finally, uh, Snook describes how um, the helicopter pilots and the F-16 pilots had a very different conception of time. Black helicopters fly at one speed and they have kind of one sense of time and the F-16s fly at a very different speed and they have a entirely and much faster and have a very different sense of time. And it was this clash between these two time frames that, that really kind of generated. So I think you can see in that example, at least uh, kind of works for me, is that, you know, shifting parameters, uh, surprising intercurrence. And uh, you know problems of temporal alignment. So, so and there's more to to his explanation, but I'm just pulling out what to to illustrate. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually, as I was reading your article, um, I thought about um, right. national defense multiple times. Not that specific example, um, but just trying to think about organizations that know they're going to be operating. They don't know what the exact environment is going to be, but they know that it's going to be shifting and changing and there's going to be unpredictable things that happen um and uh yeah I, that, that example really helps to flesh that out i think i think there's actually a lot to learn from military organizations because they have a lot of experience of dealing with turbulent you know environments just just from an organizational point of view yeah yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, you. You trace out these four different dilemmas in the article um, mm -hmm. uh, that that organizations can confront in trying to sort of deal with this turbulence. Um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about? Uh, you can walk us for, through all four, or just maybe tell us a little bit about what kinds of dilemmas um, come about uh, in in a turbulent environment. Yeah. Okay. This uh, this I was going to rely on Yarla to uh, to do, but sure. <laughs> no, so I'm I'm uh, winging this a little bit, but um, that's quite all right. Yeah. Yeah. We we basically set up this these four uh, dilemmas that we talk about in the paper, and and uh, the first one I believe is uh, stability versus adaptation, and in a way I think it's kind of the most important one is 
and and the, the basic dilemma is when you're confronted with these chain you know this you're, you're in this limbo that i talked about or this surprising intercurrence or you know or, or different uh uh alignments of organizational uh, uh timing you know what do you do and uh one of the things that we talked about very, you know, that kind of was motivating the paper is one way to think about what you do is you just hunker down. And, and so you, you know, the way that we saw this in terms of the theoretical literature is that uh, you can, you can hunker down and kind of re do what you know how to do, reinforce institutional path dependency, kind of go back to what, you know, stick to the knitting. You can give it all kinds of descriptions like that. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, there during these situations, there's a lot of pressure and um, there's a lot of maybe incentive and opportunity to change. And so we were thinking about this kind of path dependence versus punctuated equilibrium. This is these are opportunities to to shift the way you do things. Uh, often you have to, you know, you're you're pressured to find new ways to do things. You're shifting from one set of parameters to another. Um, and so how do you how do you deal with that? So so this is a, I think we, we began to see this issue of stability versus adaptation as, as running through a whole set of issues that um, uh, that organizations faced. And I'm going to come back and talk about that is, is our explanation is really uh, for organizations to, to kind of manage both of these together as as a kind of a, a dual process but I'll, I'll come back to that yeah, yeah. second so the first dilemma is is do you hunker down or do you you know tr try to go with the flow and and change things uh to adapt to the new circumstances the second um the second dilemma is uh, what we call anticipation versus resilience this really comes from the work of aaron Woldowski, who who uh, you may know, uh, drew this distinction between organizations that, you know, there's two ways to respond to things. You can either anticipate things coming. If you're talking about risk, you might anticipate the risk. Uh, if you anticipate, he argued, then you're often in a planning mode. So you're planning for the future if you can anticipate the future. And the other way to look at it is that you're, um, uh, if you can't anticipate, Often you're you're better off being resilient rather than you know planning for how to respond to events. You're better off just creating an organization that can be resilient. So so the dilemma the dilemma there is is uh, you know should in the face of turbulence should we should we anticipate the turbulence and and be prepared? Should we have pandemic planning to prepare for the pand pandemic? Or should we, you know, just uh, have lots of institutional features in place and organizations that make us resilient for when the next pandemic comes? That's kind of a, one of the examples that I used to think about that. So the the third um, the third um, dilemma is what we say is tight coupling versus decoupling, and this is kind of how you might respond to turbulent environments. So. So this is about control, really. One thing you might do if, if in the face of turbulence is try to reach out and, and tighten up your control of it so it's not turbulent. 
so that's tighter coupling. And then the other way to do it is to basically decouple yourself or insulate or buffer yourself from the source of that turbulent disturbance. So we just see this, these are two possibilities. And of course, we kind of come down in the center again, which is, you know, loose coupling is in between and, and I'll come back to that. But, um, and the, and the third, the last dilemma is kind of related to that issue of coupling is, um, integration versus differentiation. And we were thinking about this, you know, how organizations respond, uh, you know, on the one hand you can, um, we were thinking about this in terms of the classic literature on vertical integration versus make, not buy. So kind of transaction cost economics. So one thing you can do uh, when you confront turbulence is you can integrate those sources of turbulence. You can integrate them into your, to your, um, into the organization, or you can take a different strategy. You can take a more differentiated strategy and organizations can develop to become niche players that specialize in just taking advantage of certain niches. And uh, so that's a, that's a kind of a last dilemma. What, you know, how, how do you deal again with sources of turbulence? So those are, so since I'm going to go ahead and talk about in a second about, I think your, your next question is going to be, how do I, how do I respond? How do we respond to that? So, so maybe I'll leave that there. Those are, those are how we set out the four dilemmas. And I, I guess I'll just say that, that we use the dilemmas as a way to shape, uh, to, to, to kind of synthesize the literature, but also to show why it's it's not self-evident what organizations should do. It's it's kind of a it's challenging. They can go in several directions, and and the dilemmas help to pull that out of uh, you know what we found in the literature. Yeah, yeah, and just. I, I found myself as I was as I was reading some of these sections, thinking about, um, of course, uh, the the one of the recurring themes in the public uh, administration literature is how are public organizations different than private organizations, and um, right. and one of the things I was thinking about is obviously turbulence isn't something that just exists in the public sector, um, no. but. In, in the private sector, we think about organizations, maybe new ones forming and old ones disappearing more easily. You have you know, startup culture out there where you live in Silicon Valley yeah. area. Um, yeah. And uh, of course, starting a new public organization is a much bigger enterprise. You know, you have to get a lot more actors on board to actually start a new public organization most of the time. And yeah. so I think that ecosystem that you describe is something or that, that you hint at when you're when you're making some of these descriptions is something yeah. that we see in the in the private sector as well, um, that sometimes turbulence in the private sector means old big organizations get smaller and, and yeah. new startups try to fill that gap. Um, and and of course, the way that looks in the in the public sector is a little bit different, which I think you've kind of captured with um, yeah. some of these descriptions um, of mm -hmm. you know coupling versus decoupling and and some of that sort of thing. And actually, going back to in terms of distinguishing between public and private organizations, when uh, you know we think of um, most of the literature on turbulence is about private organizations, and we mentioned that in the in the article. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, and, and most of that literature focuses on the environment as the source of turbulence. But, you know, I think 
many public organizations are very internally turbulent because of the political context in which they operate. And, and so I think public studies of public organizations actually have a lot to add to our understanding of turbulence because I think their world is pretty turbulent, you know, even, but we don't really have a much, con we don't really have a concept to talk about that very much. But I think we all know that public agencies operate in a turbulent uh, environment and the turbulence is internal and it's also external. So. Yeah, some of the, the thoughts on turbulence when, when you were earlier talking about public agencies and in the kind of wake of the, the new administration made me think about some of the turbulence around the FBI. Um, yeah. <laughs> things going on, but also if you, if you read the reporting, there's a lot of internal turbulence uh, as well at the FBI. And then you have all these kind of different events. There was, you know, um, whole things before the election with emails. And then re more recently, there's been stuff that's come out after Parkland. And so you have these external pieces of, of events going on, multiple ones interacting in complex ways, while at the same time, there are these reports of how turbulent within the organization is right now. Yeah. Uh, was one okay. that I was thinking of when you were talking about uh, external and, and yeah. the internal of the organization. And, and I think that that is one of the kind of dangers that we face in public organizations is that the external turbulence penetrates into the internal turbulence and, 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 and both lead to kind of maladaptive responses that, that, to go back to my earlier term, that then kind of deepen that uh, turbulence. I mean, I, I don't I think there's lots of buffers on turbulence as well that we don't really talk too much about in the in the paper. But. You know, so this is this is not to be hysterical about that, but but I but I do think that there's ways in which you know that these that turbulence can create its own dynamic in that sense and, and, and deepen as a result. So you can imagine inside the FBI, uh, people are probably a little de pretty demoralized. There's some kind of some increasing conflict. I, I don't know. I'm not in the FBI, but you know, you can imagine increasing conflict. You can. Imagine that spilling over into other issues, maybe personnel issues, um, you know, issues of career trajectory, what the political culture is. So you can imagine these kind of things uh, spilling. Uh, one of the features of turbulence is it can have these cascading type of consequences, you know, if it really if it really gets bad. So so um, I think it's I think that it's a language to talk about that set of issues that we all know are is, is uh, are occurring uh, in the public sector. So uh, I think you showed our hand uh, already, Chris, but uh, we'll yeah, sorry. Hold sorry with, about that. <laughs> with the last question um, yeah. structured it, it is how the how do how managers kind of should respond to these dilemmas. I mean, one that you highlighted that we wanted to come back to was stability versus uh, being adaptive and how does an organization manage to uh, manage both those kind of different choices in the face of turbulence? Yeah, and, and, and as I kind of hinted, um, we, we think of, you know, organizations have to be both stable and adaptive. And so that's kind of the trick under turbulent conditions. So we, we talk about that in the, in the paper. Um, I, I, I boiled this down just for the purposes of the interview into to five principles that we that we we come up with it, you know, the, the discussion in the article is a little bit more wide ranging, but, but I boil it down into five principles. And then 
because they're abstract, I, I also came up with a, uh, an example from the U.S. Coast Guard, which we mentioned in the in the um, in the paper, but we don't we don't quite go into so much detail. But but it just will give you a sense of, of what we're talking about here. So uh, so let me run through the, the these five principles, and then uh, I'll give you the example. So the the, the first principle uh, is that public agencies who are confronting turbulence often need to kind of learn to make do with the resources that they have at hand. So, I mean, you know, things are happening quickly, typically in turbulent conditions. And so it's not it's not a matter of starting new programs often. It's a matter of kind of working with what you have. And um, one of the things, one of the implications of this, as we see it, is that it means that you need to be able to easily and, uh, well, rapidly repurpose existing resources and institutional structures for new purposes. And uh, I don't know, maybe uh, listeners will be familiar that this, this is basically is a, something that the strategy literature calls bricolage. So it's, it's about how you, you're kind of tinkering with, you know, using what you have at hand to get to, to respond to the situation. So that's the first principle. And, um, the second principle is that to be able to rapidly repurpose resources or structures, uh, agencies need to have flexible, uh, the institution needs to be flexible. And on the one hand, this means they can't be too hierarchical or rule bound, but on the other hand, they can't be anarchic either. So flexibility doesn't mean anything goes here. Um, the key point for us is we, thought through this is that that rules and organizational structure have to make it easy to repurpose existing resources and structures. So, so they, they facilitate bricolage. And uh, the third principle is that this is sometimes called requisite variety. You may have uh, heard this concept from systems theory, but it basically says that organizations need to maintain some organizations kind of respond to turbulence by just refocusing on the, on their narrow um, on their narrow mission and kind of getting rid of external other you know di uh, distracting things, which may be a good uh, response in many cases. But but this point about requisite variety says that organizations are actually more adaptive when they have a diversity of organizing repertoires at at hand. Um, and also when they're able to engage more in what James March called exploration, which is the ability to kind of rapidly scan the environment. So, so organizations that, you know, get refocused on their own um, mission and kind of get rid of other issues and kind of look inwardly, th those organizations are going to have more trouble adapting it from, from this point of view. The fourth principle, uh, and, you, and you can see these principles are kind of building on each other. They're not mutually exclusive, really. The fourth principle is that organizations can use modular structures to, uh, to balance both adaptability and stability. And modular structures are uh, decomposable resources or structures that typically can be combined by using standardized interfaces. Uh, which, and so this basically facilitates 
recombination and repurposing of of um, uh, of basic assets. So that's so mo so modular structures are good. Is this fourth principle? And the fifth principle is that um, uh, that uh, adaptable organizations often are use are often hybrid organizations, or they use strategies that we call interstitial. Um, actually, we're we're drawing on other literature to, to use these terms, so we're not inventing the terms, but but they do kind of work. And it, uh, so hybrid structures are uh, combine different types of institutional logics. So, for example, hierarchy and networks, um, and interst interstitial structures create institutional bridges between different resources or groups. So you could also think of networks as being interstitial resources. So so that's uh, that, that's the final point. Okay. Uh, I'll provide you now with this example, which, to, which since I, that's all pretty abstract, I realize. But let me give you an uh, example, and I think it'll bring it down a little bit to earth, uh, or I hope it will. The example is the U.S. Coast Guard, which I've been kind of fascinated with, um, especially after uh, the Katrina response, or the you know the, the um, Coast Guard came out smelling a little bit better. Uh, you know, relative to other organizations, and and then later in, like for instance, the um, uh, the Gulf oil spill, they also did quite a good job in in some respects. So you know, I'm not saying that they're perfect, but uh, yeah, I think uh, they, their performance in those conditions kind of gave me a a reason to investigate. And you know, it's it, there's it's kind of limited investigation but uh, one, of, one of the things to say is the Coast Guard maybe it's unfair because the Coast Guard deals with turbulence as part of its basic response especially in its rescue missions I mean so it's a little bit like that point about the military the military is out there dealing with turbulence every day so we can learn something from that I think and that so this example here with the, with the Coast Guard um, so here, here's how this, this fits those five principles. First of all, important thing to know is that uh, Coast Guard resources are distributed all over the country, uh, but the Coast Guard is really good at kind of accessing and assembling those resources, those distributed resources, and putting, to, putting them together in a customized way for any individual mission. So they're doing that all the time. And uh, so one of the conclusions from this is that the Coast Guard is really good at leveraging its own internal resources. So this is this is like the point about bricolage. It's you know good at using what it has. And uh, one of the ways that it does this, which I was just fascinated with when I learned more about this, this comes from a GAO report about their response in Katrina. Um, they use standardized protocols to put these mission teams together. And, and when I first read that, I kind of went against how I thought about things because it, you know, that sounded kind of rule bound and hierarchical standardized protocols. But um, uh, what I learned is that they use those standardized interfaces. They use them in combination with two, uh, two organizational norms that increase the flexibility of how this is used. Um, the first norm uh, is that these Coast, Coast Guard resources can be accessed from anywhere in the country. So anytime you're setting up a mission, you have all the resources of the Coast Guard at your disposal um, for that for that mission. You might not use them or need them, but you know if they're if you need them, they're there. So they're um, 
And the second norm is what the Coast Guard calls on-scene initiative. And that basically, you know, probably familiar, gives frontline employees uh, discretion, decision-making discretion about making uh, decisions about how teams will assemble resources. And, and so I would argue that it's this combination of easy access to widely distributed resources, standardized protocols, um, and the flexibility by which these are put together. This creates essentially a modular system. So that's referred to in the paper, but not in much depth. Um, and, and that that modular system, modular structure of, of the Coast Guard allows them to kind of repurpose and recombine assets as needed in a relatively rapid fashion in the face of, you know, different different circumstances. Um, Coast Guard units are also described as being multi-mission generalists, and uh, they're, they're basically trained to be able to shift back and forth between different kinds of missions. So I don't know if you know much about the Coast Guard, but they do a lot of regulatory things, they do rescue missions, they, you know, regulate shipping, uh, pollution, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of things. So they have multiple missions. And, and one of the implications of this is that they, they've developed a lot of internal organizing repertoires, uh, that they can draw on. And, and finally, uh, the Coast Guard is described in the literature on disaster management as being very good at both hierarch, at, at combining both hierarchical and network organizations together. Not always, I've, I've learned from my reading, but, but in many cases they're, they're pointed out as an example of this. So that's an example of hybridity. And they've also, they're also described as uh, being very good at um, basically networking with other organizations. Um, they um, are known to maintain their networks with other organizations at local, state, national, international levels. And they're and they're particularly good at that. Uh, disaster management scholars have described that as contingent coordination. I'm not sure you're familiar with, with or your listeners will be familiar, but just to throw out, you know, to make a reference to the literature. And, and so all these things you can see, uh, I think, kind of add up to a, a, a flexible and adaptive way to respond to turbulence, but. Uh, with quite a bit of structure there. So it's not like, so it combines both structure and adaptability. And that's one of the things I think, one of the conclusions of our research that we found is that it's, it's, it's partly about combining stability and adaptability that's, that's uh, important in, in responding to turbulence. So that was a long-winded way. Sorry for it to go on so long. No, I think the, <laughs> I think the example is really useful because I, I think it's, you know, it might be hard for a listener. I know it's it's hard for me to hold, you know, the different pieces, the different dilemmas in your head and to kind of lay them out in yeah. sort of, a, you know, a, a very quick case study, I think is yeah. really useful because, you know, it's not immediately clear how being um, uh, adaptive and stable at the same time makes sense. Like on its face, they seem a yeah. little bit in conflict. They're and, pulling, pulling apart to some degree. Yeah. Um, and so I think the uh, I think the examples is really is really useful and it's useful I think to think of these and and sort of what you just did with your hand gesture for people who are seeing the video which is trying to pull things apart versus them being pulled together and so there are some of these inherent tensions in these dilemmas and inherent uh, tensions 
and how the, uh, in particular, say managers have to navigate turbulence. It's not like there's just one go maximize adaptive adaptiveness and go run that direction or hunker completely down and don't do anything else, just hunker down. And so I think it's really useful to, to have the case, but also for, for people to think about it in that way as, you know, that they, they are in some ways there's some tension and in some ways they might be substitutes on some dimensions, right? But you really can, if you think about it a little bit more strategically, find ways in which they can be complementary towards better performance and handling turbulence and not as uh, as much in tension with one another. Yeah, the, the dilemmas that we describe are meant to kind of show how managers or organizations are pulled in different directions. And then we, we, we try to show that there are, you know, opportunities for them to, to to try to put, to kind of steer a course in between. We call it kind of the sweet spot between, you know, and it's hard to pinpoint exactly what that is, but it's, you know, I think it'll change with different circumstances. But, but, uh, but I think understanding the dilemmas helps you to understand what the potential solutions might be. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, uh, the extra examples were really, uh, really helpful because I think, you know, going into it, to your point, some of this is some pretty, High level, uh, you know, abstracting uh, away from a specific organization stuff that y'all have done here, and so I think uh, elaborating a little bit further on the example is really good to help internalize some of the some of what you're trying to communicate in the paper on turbulence. So um, well, I think we've reached the hour mark, Chris. Um, so here, thanks so much for I taking. Talk to you. <laughs> yeah, this is, this has been a lot of fun. We uh, yeah. Nathan and I always kind of say to one another before and after how much we look forward to these and then how much we learn and how fun it is to just kind of talk about these uh, among other scholars, but kind of talk about them in a way that hopefully is interesting and uh, digestible to people who aren't doing work on this exact topic. So I think you did a really great job helping us with that today. Nice to meet you both. And thanks so much for, uh, for kind of doing this a great service to the profession. So thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you. And um, so I'll just uh, wind us down. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thanks for those of you that watched live. This will be available on the PMRA Facebook page. will also be available as a podcast episode in the Public Problems podcast. And just one more uh, reminder, which is we'll be doing this again about a week from now, a week from now in a couple hours with Karina Schott on March 12th at 3 p.m. And again, we'll be discussing her paper that is co-authored with Adrian Ritz, which is the dark sides of public service motivation, a multi-level theoretical framework. So thanks again for joining us and uh, we'll hope to see you next week. Okay. Thanks.